Well, I read a, a, a story of a seminary professor, and he had recently retired from uh, his position as a, as a Bible professor. He had taught for some 40 years, and his most favorite class was the attributes of God, where he instructed the students on things like God's love, His forgiveness, God's patience, and the like. Now, in retirement, the professor decided that he would fix up his house a bit. And one day, he he poured out a brand new concrete driveway. It it looked so nice. It looked so sharp. He was so proud of his efforts. And when he was finished, he decided to head back in the house and and get a glass of iced tea and, and, and take an hour or two to rest. After his time of rest, he walked outside and looked again upon the newly laid concrete driveway, to his surprise, not to his amusement, he found a half dozen neighborhood kids jumping up and down in the wet concrete. The professor was incensed. He saw the kids on his newly paved driveway and he was furious. In fact, he was so mad, he started yelling and running after the kids. He ran all around the neighborhood and and screaming and yelling and the kids were running for their lives from this professor. He yelled and screamed all over the place. The commotion lasted for five whole minutes until every child found their way back home, cowering in their rooms from fear of the professor. Then the man finally came home. And as he did, his wife met him on the front porch. What a shame, she said. What a shame. For 40 years, you've taught God's love, God's forgiveness, and God's patience. And now, now look at you. Look at what you've done to your testimony. And the man, acting kind of sheepish, just hung his head down low, pointed at the driveway and said, but darling, all that teaching was abstract. And this is concrete. (laughs) Give me a good groan. Ready? One, two, three. Oh, all right. I like it. Patience. Patience. Do you have patience? I don't always have patience. But you know who does have patience? Our God has patience. This professor, he failed. He failed at the end of his life to express the very thing he espoused in all of his 40 years of teaching. But our God, we're going to learn in Romans chapter 9, has abundant, exceeding patience. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, and we're going to begin today in verse 19. Now, we're in the middle of a series. Uh, we're, we're coming back to it. We've, we've left it for a, probably a good month now. And we're coming back into our series in Romans. The title of uh, the series is uh, uniquely God's plan for Israel. Uh, the Lord's going to uh, Paul's going to be speaking a lot about the people of the Jews, particularly in the first century. And what's their future about this message is entitled part three, never without mercy, God's patient. I emphasize that word and purposeful wrath. We'll find out what that means. Uh, it's kind of a. Uh, awkward kind of a statement, but we're going to find out what that means here in Romans 9. And, and I, won't, uh, I won't lie to you, this is going to be a tough text. This is, uh, this is a lot of text. 
This is a text that uh, a lot of pastors will shy away from uh, because it's, it's hard to understand. A lot, a lot of churches will shy away from because it's hard to understand and uh, making sense of it isn't easy. But I'll tell you, folks, you know, uh, when you go through tough passages like this and you, you piece it, you, you take it apart and put it back together, the Lord blesses your efforts when you are willing to grapple with some of the most difficult texts in all the Bible. And I guarantee you this is one of them. So we're going to hang with, uh, hang with the text today. And by the end of this, I hope it's going to make sense to us. And I hope it's going to help us see the abundant patience of God. So part three today, never without mercy, God's patient and purposeful wrath. We've come through parts one and two earlier. Part one, we had God's promises remain for the Israel within Israel. Part two, mercy and hardening are God's prerogatives. And now we're at part three. If you want to see those other messages, you can check them out online. I, I would encourage you to do that. Now, up until this point in our study in Romans, Paul has been defending the character of God. Defending God with respect to whom he elects to receive his mercy and whom he hardens. You'll recall in Romans 9, look a, a tad earlier at verse 17. Romans 9:17, Paul writes, For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom He wills, and whom He wills, He hardens. Now, of course, a statement like that about the prerogatives of God will undoubtedly compel human beings to ask a very, very legitimate question. And that question is, if God shows mercy on whom He wills, and if God hardens whom He wills, then how is mankind accountable for their actions? It is this question that Paul begins to answer in our study today in Romans. Now, we've covered a portion of this, but we're going to do a little recap and then we're going to tra traverse deeper into Romans 9. Take a look at Romans 9, beginning in verse 19 on to 24 today. Paul writes in response, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted God's will? But indeed, O man, who are you? to reply against God. Will the thing formed say to Him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And then He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Zero in on verse 19 for a moment. Paul writes, You will say to me then, why does He still find fault? For who has resisted His will? Now this is Paul characterizing the argument of his opponents uh, or, or detractors. These are people, even Christians and non, who are saying in response to what Paul is writing, they're saying, wait a minute, if God hardens whomever He wants, then how can He hold man accountable? 
for what man does. Now, we've covered this verse before in Romans 9, but a brief review is very much in order. Here in verse 19 is the classic objection to the sovereignty of God. If God hardens people, how can He fault them? It goes without saying that many people dislike the notion of God hardening people. Many believe it to be unjust and arbitrary of God. Paul certainly heard this argument time and again, which is precisely why he quotes it here. And it is a daunting question. I mean, no doubt. Anyone, uh, anyone asked this question is immediately put on the defensive, having to find a way to defend the very character of God. We were right to think that Paul is in a bind here. What he will say next may determine whether scores of curious first century Romans accept or reject the gospel. And what he will say next will have drastic implications for the Christian faith and theology both 2,000 years ago and today. Paul is no dummy. He knows the stakes. He knows the grave importance of a right and a compelling answer to this question. And so, as I repeatedly said in the last time we studied this passage, we do well to suppose that Paul will give his best answer in response to the accusation of verse 19. We do well. Let me say that again. We, do, we think rightly to suppose that Paul will give his best answer to the charge against God's integrity in verse 19. So are you ready for it? Are you ready to hear the greatest answer that Paul can give at this point in his epistle? Here it is, verse 20 and 21. It may surprise you. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? If God hardens people, how can He still find fault? Paul's response, Who are you to respond to God? The potter alone retains power over the clay. Do you accept that answer? Do you believe it to be uh, the best answer Paul could have given? I would suggest that a good portion of Christians um, ignore this answer by Paul. I would suggest that they, a good portion of Christian people instinctively supplement Paul's answer with what they believe is a better answer, a more sophisticated answer, an answer that makes God look a little bit better. Maybe an answer like God only hardens those who harden themselves. Have you heard that answer before? God only hardens those who already harden themselves. There, that sounds better, right? Surely we would all agree that this makes God look good. And certainly less arbitrary. It makes Christians or Christianity seem a lot more palatable and attractive. No more of this, he hardens whomever he hardens talk. 
But as I said many times over in our last study in Romans, given the stakes, given the gravitas of the situation, if Paul believed that to be an answer to the charge of verse 19, don't you suppose he would have given it? If Paul believed this supplemental answer that, that, that we often, Christians often uh, give because they think Paul kind of missed it, maybe. Um, if, if Paul thought that was on the table, don't you think he would have said it? If Paul believed it to be true, don't you think he would have mentioned it? I do. And so, it is exceedingly troubling to me, and it should be to all of us, that Paul doesn't use this answer in verse 20. Instead, he says, Who are you to reply against God? The potter alone retains power over the clay. Now make no mistake, Paul's refusal to give a more popular answer to the question in verse 19 tells us at least two things. Number one, he didn't believe that answer to be true. And number two, that we as a people should be hesitant. We should be leery of Christian theologies that take away from the sovereignty of God. We should be wary of Christian theologies that diminish or detract from the ultimate right that God has over His creation. Are there limits on His sovereignty? I, I think we can discuss um, issues of, you know, some, some go so far as to say that God predestines people to hell. I would disagree with that. I don't think that's an aspect of God's sovereignty. But neither am I prepared to say that God does not have complete control over His creation. I, I, I must say that. It is a biblical answer. It is a biblical... Uh, it is a tenet of our theology that God has complete control over what He has made. And Paul's answer is not PC, and it certainly isn't popular, but it is clear and it is firm. Of course, now, we have a natural question that follows it. Well, what does that even mean? What does it mean to harden someone? What does it mean to fashion someone for dishonor? And this, too, we briefly discussed last time. You know, many, when we consider the issues of hardening or dishonoring, many instinctively have this knee-jerk reaction that, well, that pertains to the issues of eternal condemnation. But this is unjustified. It's unjustified based on the use of these words in, in, in the New Testament and how the biblical writers use them. There are numerous instances in which these words, to harden or to dishonor, are used in so many other ways than just the issue of eternal condemnation. There are three scriptures that I want to highlight briefly here, right now. Take a look at the first. Hebrews 3, notice this. Beware, brethren, i.e. Christians lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God, but exhort one another daily while it is still called today, lest any of you be hardened 
through the deceitfulness of sin. Here we have the Greek word skleruno, the same Greek word used in Romans 9 when it talks about God hardening the heart of Pharaoh. We should rightly expect this word hardening to be a description of unbelievers, often. But what is surprising here in Hebrews 3 is that the word is also used to describe Christians. Surely, we wouldn't have this warning in Hebrews chapter 3 unless there was a potential for a Christian person to be hardened. And so, when you come across Scriptures that speak of God hardening someone's heart, why should you have a knee-jerk reaction that that means He's hardening them unto hell? We shouldn't have that. The Scriptures don't attest to that. And so we should back off a little bit on what that even means when God hardens the heart of a person. This, lead, this leads to the conclusion that, hey, a Christian can be hardened. A Christian can be hardened on your outline. A second text that's noteworthy. Take a look at Romans 11, verse 25. Paul writes this, I do not want you, brethren, uh, to, to be, uh, for I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. What do we see here? We see the word hardening again. It's a di- in full disclosure, it's a different Greek word than skleruno, but scholars widely agree they're, they're synonyms. There's no, there's no difference in meaning here. What do we see here? We see an aspect of temporality to the issue of hardening. And so, number two on your outline, hardening can be temporal. It's not, it's not necessarily eternal. We don't necessarily have to read that into Romans 9. When God hardened the heart of Pharaoh, it wasn't with a view to hell. The Scriptures don't attest to that. Is Pharaoh in hell? Most likely. Is it because God hardened his heart? The Scriptures don't justify that. They do not justify that. If he's in heaven, I'll be very surprised. You know, hey, Pharaoh, how you doing? Didn't, didn't do too well on the earth, did you? No, I don't think he's there. I could be wrong. Hardening can be temporal, friends. Temporal. In fact, I, I, I would venture to say that though the Scriptures... Though, the, 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 though there's not conclusive evidence either way, I would venture to say, based on what we know to be true of the character of God, that hardening is always temporal. It's always with a view to accomplish God's purpose in that period of time. A third scripture that is relevant to our discussion, this time to the issue of dishonor, the word dishonor. Take a look. Second Timothy 2. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, the dishonor, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. Here again, the emphasis is on the temporality of the dishonor. Paul is quite clear. A vessel of dishonor can become a vessel of honor. Number three, what is dishonorable can become honorable. And so when we read Scriptures like Romans 9, uh, 21, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? We don't need to read eternal purpose into verse 21. We can, based on the use of the Word, based on the use of 
of the, the, based on the semantic range of the word in the New Testament, we can read into that with a view to the temporal situation. That God uses some for dishonor, some for honor. At times, He'll take a person who was once used for dishonor and use them for honor, and vice versa. Why does God harden? Why does God use vessels for honor and, and dishonor? Why, why does He make these decisions in life? Again, if you look at Romans 9.17, the, the answer is plain. The Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I've raised you up. Why? That I may show my power in you. That I may declare my name in all the earth. Those are the reasons that God chooses to harden at times, that God chooses to dishonor at times. It is to accomplish the proclamation of His name. It is to carry out His power. And we don't need to read into this a predestination unto hell. That's not justified based on the text. And we should be leery of, uh, of making that supposition from the Scriptures. I don't believe it's there. And I think those who, who believe that God predestines people to hell are not thinking clearly and critically about the character of God. About a God who repeatedly says in the Scriptures that He wishes all men to come to know Him. We don't have an issue of double predestination in Romans 9, in my estimation. I, I, I always am willing to discuss it with, uh, with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And I know that uh, the, the, the very strong... Calvinist uh, friends that I have would argue for this and they would argue vehemently for it. I don't think it's there in the Scriptures. I don't think hardening is ever viewed as eternal in the Scriptures. I don't think the making for dishonor is ever viewed as, as with a view to hell. It's always for a temporal moment in time to accomplish His purpose at that moment in time. God does these things to demonstrate His power, to declare His name, and third, we're going to see next, to make known His mercy. Take a look at verse 22. Verse 22. What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering, patience, the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that He might make known the riches of His glory on the vessels of mercy, which He had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Verse 22 begins with the, the words, what if God? Now, Paul is really not uh, uh, entering in a, a hypothetical discussion here, actually. It, it may be a little bit deceiving in our English translations. The, uh, a better translation of this in Greek would be, what's it to you? Or, or, or how can you argue with this if God acts in this manner? So Paul's actually uh, further laying out, he's delineating, how God can conduct Himself in any way He so chooses. And in this particular instance, Paul's saying, what's it to you if God acts in this way to accomplish His mercy? We'll see more about what that means here in just a moment. Of course, our eyes, our eyes jump immediately to the phrase, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, don't they? Uh, that, that sounds pretty ominous, right? I would agree with that. We, we look at that phrase and we think, my goodness, that's, uh, that sounds very, very scary. What does that mean? Here again, many instinctively suppose 
that this, this phrase uh, necessarily means that we're looking at people who are headed for eternal condemnation. Or people who are predestined, if you will. Prepared. That God ordered it in such a way that they would be eternally condemned. Again, I want to emphasize that I think this is an unjustified interpretation of Romans 9. A couple reasons. Let's, let's, let's split the words up here. Let's split up the phrases. Let's first deal with the issue of prepared for destruction. The word prepared there uh, in your notes is the word katartizo uh, in Greek. It means to set right or to complete. It means to arrange or to, the best answer, to be fit for something. To be fit for something. To, to be arranged in such a way that it lends toward something. And how about that word destruction? Apoleia in Greek. Um, means destruction. It means calamity. It means ruin. It can mean hell. It can also mean physical destruction. The interesting thing about this word uh, apoleia is, it's, uh, is the verbal form, which is apolumai in Greek. And uh, where do we see uh, the word apolumai in Greek? We see it back in Exodus in the Greek translation of the Old Testament with respect to the story of Pharaoh. Take a look. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man, Moses, be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet know that Egypt is destroyed? Apolumai in Greek. That Egypt is going to hell? No. That Egypt is destroyed. It's being ruined. It's being laid flat. The servants of Pharaoh and the advisors of Pharaoh, his political advisors, the guys in the cabinet, they looked at him and they said, listen to this Moses guy. By now it was the eighth plague. The locusts had come. There was total ruin and destruction in Egypt. And Pharaoh's advisors were saying, let them go. Don't you see? You're destroying your country. Prepared for destruction. Is that eternal? I don't think the text supports that, particularly with the view that, that Paul's been talking about Pharaoh. We're looking back at the text in, in, in Exodus. The word destruction does not necessarily mean it, it, uh, hellfire. I think a better translation, a, a, a more authentic translation would be this. Fit for calamity. Fit for calamity. Now, that does not necessarily entail eternal condemnation. It doesn't need to. All that Paul is suggesting here is that there is a portion of the community, and we'll get to this a little, in, in just a moment, you're going to see Paul's argument even further as we dig deeper in. He's saying there's a portion of the community, these vessels of wrath, and they are fit for calamity. They're they, things have been arranged such that they are moving toward their very destruction, their very ruin. Now, what about that phrase, vessels of wrath? I've already made mention of the temporality of wrath in previous messages in Romans. I encourage you uh, to, to, to check that out. Um, but perhaps one further scripture is in order here. Ephesians 2, 1 through 4, very familiar text. And you, you he made alive, who were once dead in trespasses and sins, among whom we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, 
and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. What is Paul saying about you and me in Ephesians 2? Here's what he's saying. Who was once a child of wrath? Who was once a vessel of wrath? You were. I was. We were once vessels, children of wrath, fit for calamity. But God in Christ made us alive again when we believed in Jesus for our forgiveness, for our eternal destiny. And this is what God does. He takes vessels of wrath and He changes them. He takes vessels of dishonor and He makes them honorable again. Romans 9 is not a proof text for those who believe God predestines people to hell. Instead, it is firm confirmation that while God may harden some for a time, it is always with a view toward the proclamation of His mercy and of His salvation. And our God is patient, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That is the spirit of Romans 9.22 and 23. Make no mistake, friends, the vessels of wrath are people whom God can transform into His sons and daughters by faith in Christ. Which leads us to perhaps one final question in our text today. Who are these vessels of wrath? Who are these vessels of wrath that Paul speaks? Are they some uh, generic entity? Is Paul, now remember, Paul has, told, has basically said Pharaoh was an example of a vessel of wrath. God hardened his heart. He used him for, uh, in a dishonorable way to accomplish his purpose for a time, letting the children of Israel leave. He accomplishes power and glory by showing the plagues and, 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 and declaring his name. I mean, hundreds of years later, they were still talking about the plagues in, in Egypt. And here we are today speaking of them. Pharaoh was a vessel of wrath, no doubt. But here we have the plural in uh, verse 20, uh, 22. What if God, what's it to you? If God, desiring to show His wrath and to make His power known, endures with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction so that He might make known the riches of His glory and the vessels of mercy. Who are these vessels of wrath? Are they, is it just a generic group that Paul's painting with a broad brush? Or does he have some, some group in mind? Is that possible? Might there be another group in the first century that God had hardened? Hardened to accomplish His purpose. To carry out His plan. Romans 11, verse 25 is, is interesting. Paul writes, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Did you read that? A partial hardening. Wait a minute. Those who are hardened for a time are likened to vessels of wrath of which you and I all were once prior to our faith in Christ. So, those who are hardened are likened to vessels of wrath. And here we see 
Paul speaking of Israel as being hardened. What group in the first century was largely opposed to the things of God? There were many, no doubt. But what group might, might even be called God's enemy? Romans 11.28 Concerning the Gospel, they, Israel, are enemies for your sake, Gentiles. These aren't my words, these are Paul's words. This isn't my inference, this is Paul's inference. What about 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 and 16? Israel killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. They do not please God, are contrary to men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath, wrath, wrath has come upon them to the uttermost, Paul writes to the Thessalonians. What? What is Paul saying? Is Paul, is Paul comparing the Jews, the Israelites of the first century to vessels of wrath that have been hardened, that have become, for a time, God's enemies, that are nearing the day of God's wrath. Is it possible that this is the group among many groups that are opposed to God in the first century, no doubt. But is it possible that this is the group that Paul had chiefly in his mind? That he was speaking to primarily and saying, listen, Israel, God's chosen people, you have so strayed from your mission. You have so strayed from your God, from your faith, from the heritage of the patriarchs, that you have traversed not just a little bit, but you've gone from honor to dishonor. You've gone from a place of mercy to a place of being the object of God's wrath. Matthew chapter 23, notice Jesus' words here. Tremendous words, friends. Significant words. Matthew 23, verse 37. Jesus writes, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know what Jesus was predicting there? He was looking at Jerusalem. He was looking at the temple. And in no uncertain terms, he was predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. He was declaring that this place those who were and are God's chosen people, this place has become so desecrated that its walls are going to come down, that it is fit for calamity, that it has become a vessel of wrath. Friends, do you suppose it is coincidence that the defining event of the first century, other than the resurrection of Christ, 
was the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, in which the city was destroyed, the temple was desecrated, and 1.1 million Jews lost their lives in the fight against Rome. Is it not hard to suppose that when Paul speaks of the vessels of wrath fit for calamity, that one of the primary groups in his mind is his own people? His own people. And yet, I, I, we don't say this to... Uh, the, there's no gloating in this. There's nothing, there's nothing to be had by making this claim other than to note how well it coincides with Paul's words in Romans 9, 10, 11. Nothing can be gained except to know that even those who are called and set apart and chosen by God, even those set aside for mercy and for honor, even those can traverse, can go back, can regress to dishonor, to becoming an object of God's wrath. In hell? No. Here. Now. Right here. Right now. God's chosen people, I would argue, according to Romans 9, had become vessels of wrath through which God was going to judge the nation of Israel. And yet, friends, do we walk away thinking of the judgment? No. Here's what we walk away with. God was patient with them. He was long-suffering with them. He waited not, not 10, not 20, not 30. He waited 40 years after the death of His Son to render this judgment upon the city of Jerusalem. To render this judgment upon the temple. Just as God always shows exceeding patience with humanity time and time again. Doug Moo writes this. He says, God, in strict justice, could have executed His sentence of condemnation on the entire human race immediately after the fall. It is only because of God's great patience that He has waited to bring down His wrath on a rebellious world so that He can finish His wise and His loving plan. And so while some, while some of us will leave Romans 9 with a calloused perspective that God is utterly arbitrary and whimsical, that He, that he takes delight in hardening people and sending calamity upon them, just the opposite is the case. Just the opposite is the case. Our God is slow to anger. He is abounding in patience. He says repeatedly that, that His patience is with a view that all mankind might come to repent, might come to turn to His Son in faith. And so let not the taste in our mouth from Romans 9 be that God hardens whimsically, that God hardens arbitrarily because He enjoys sending calamity. Just the opposite is the case, friends. I want to leave us with five reminders here as we, as we head our way today. Number one, let us remember, God is exceedingly patient even, even with the vessels of wrath. Notice again the, the language of verse 23. He says, verse 22, What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fit for calamity? He's saying, look, God, 
God is patient toward them. He's waiting for them. He is exceedingly patient, not just with us, with all mankind, even the vessels of wrath. Number two, His patience is given in the hope that mankind might repent. That's exactly what Hebrews 2.4 says. Precisely the, the perspective there. Thirdly, He was patient with us. We who were once children of wrath. Don't forget that. Don't let somebody ascribe double predestination in Romans 9 when they see vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. You remind them, guess what you were once? A vessel of wrath prepared for destruction. You and I were once vessels of wrath, children of wrath, fit for calamity because of our sinfulness. Fit for calamity. But God has shown us mercy. He's been patient with us. Fourth, He remains patient with Israel. He will draw her to Himself on the last day. Romans 11, verse 28 and 29. Concerning the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God will save a remnant from Israel. He is showing patience even now with His people waiting for the day when many of them, when a portion of them, will turn to Him in faith. And fifth and finally, even when God expresses His justified wrath, His abundant mercy still shines brightly. In the midst of, uh, of an incredibly difficult text, in the midst of a text in which we read it and, and so many think that God is ordaining people to hell, the real light of the passage is shining on the patient mercy of God. The real thrust of the passage is a God who, does He harden for, time, for a time? Yes. Does He use His creation at times for dishonorable, in dishonorable ways that would manifest His glory further? Yes. Does He do this with a view to eternal condemnation? No. He is ever patient. Ever patient with us. Never without mercy. God's patient and purposeful wrath. It is never without mercy. Let us walk away with that being the taste in our mouth from Romans 9. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we, have, uh, we have humbly uh, tried to understand Your Word. I pray that Your Spirit would help us and give us eyes to see more and more into the Spirit of Your Word. Father, where we've gone wrong, show us our error. If we're missing something, God, I pray that You would reveal it to us and You would allow us as a church to, to uh, be ever reflecting on these most difficult passages. But God, we walk away today remembering Your patience. We remember that even in judgment, Father, even in times of calamity, You are yet showing patience and mercy. And so, Father, we cling to that. And we know that You are a God who shows mercy because we are a people who have received it. Those of us who have come to know Your Son by faith, we know what we've gained. And we know where we've come from. 
And we thank You for Your mercy. God, help us all to, in times of calamity, remember Your great mercy. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.